Rick Madison here, Rick and Friends, and uh, old friend, good friend, Ron Matusi in the house. Yeah, thanks, Rick. Uh, still friends, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Ron, we have uh, a lot of things to cover today, and and I just wanted to get caught up though on on you've you're busy. You're, you're consulting. You're doing a whole bunch of things for different communities. Which communities are you working with now? Because I know you were doing some stuff in Lytton. But, you know, your, your plate is full these days with consulting work. Yeah, no, no, I'm, uh, I'm still in Lytton and uh, doing some work with Revelstoke. And a few others are kind of getting ready for the election season. So a lot of communities have asked me to come and help them with uh, council orientation and those types of things. So, yeah, the, the, uh, the agenda is getting pretty full. So retirement has looked a lot busier than you probably thought. Yeah, I never, I never thought I would retire. I mean, I guess in the back of my mind, I knew I'd move into a diff, something different. I mean, you know, I wasn't, you know, wasn't over the hill by any stretch of the imagination. At least I didn't think so. So, yeah, no, I always knew I was going to be, I was going to be doing something. I guess I was just a little hopeful to have a little control of the flow. But I, of course, I know that it just doesn't work that way. Right? When it rains, it pours, or else it's drought. Is it a busier time heading up to a municipal election time? For you, for you, I mean. Yeah, I, I think generally speaking, actually, it's a busy time. Anyways, uh, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of communities are in real turmoil. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, what we're seeing now is the end of the baby boom era, and almost completely. And so you're losing an awful lot. And, you know, maybe some people think that's great. You lose all the old guys like Ramon Tusi. Uh, but you're also losing, you know, a lot of experience and knowledge uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, that was there and corporate knowledge for a long time. And, and there's not a huge amount of experienced people waiting in the wings. And so, uh, you know, I've done some recruitment for municipalities and boy, it's, it's as hard as an, it's as hard as any other industry uh, to try to find uh, CAOs, uh, city managers uh, with, you know, with good experience that can step into a role. In many cases, you're, you know, you're promoting people who want to be CAOs and hoping that they work out. Which is a recipe, of course. <laughs> well, because councils are getting are changing too, right? I mean, you know, the the councils in my lifetime have evolved from, you know, basically a collection of the chamber of commerce guys, you know, uh, you know, they used to say old white guys, you know, from the chamber, and you know, if they weren't if they weren't in the Lions Club, then they might run for council. It was all public service. Uh, one ran the newspaper, one ran the you know the corner gas station or whatever. And of course, over time, which is a great thing, I mean, democracy should reflect the community. But over time, uh, we've seen a real shift in in who gets elected and the nature of councillors. So yeah, it's uh, so as councils become more diverse and 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 different points of view, different things, as society becomes more complex. Of course, now all of a sudden you have a, a lack of maybe CAOs with the kind of experience that may be needed to kind of weather some of that uh, chaos. And and where do planners come from? Like what, what kind of background do, do they come out of the forest? They... <laughs> like everyone else, Rick, we're not hatched. Because, <laughs> well, you know. Okay, some are hatched. <laughs> it depends on where they, they came, came from. from yeah. But I mean, what, what kind of, uh, is there an education that is specific to the planning yeah, there's, mindset? Yeah, there's, uh, there's actual schools of planning, University of Waterloo, um, UBC has a master's program. So there's various programs at the undergrad and grad level. Um, most planners come either from those areas or they have urban geography degrees. My, you know, my background was in urban geography, which is one of those uh, backgrounds that qualifies to be a planner as well. Oh, I see. Okay. And and from your standpoint, once you have those, because didn't you have some sort of course that was helping planners with orientation? Like, wasn't there some sort of curriculum you created for for planners? Uh, no, I, I helped, certainly. Yeah, there's uh, uh, Capilano University and the Local Government Managers Association has a whole series of courses that gets put in place and some deal with planning, some deal with, so you want to be a city manager, uh, uh, and they're really there, uh, some deal with finance, uh, all kinds, all aspects of local government. They really were put in place you know, 25 years ago uh, to help, you know, in particular at the time, smaller communities who may have staff that didn't have, you know, professional backgrounds in any of these areas, um, have a broad 
base in which to you know become administrators so uh, and the programs have just evolved and so now you know everybody takes them it's not it's not just for small communities it seems like you have to wear a lot of different hats as cao like you have to be good in finance you have to be good at uh, hr you have to be good in uh, obviously planning but it seems like you you just pulled in so many different directions in yeah, that position uh, yeah and there's no de- there's no real degree to be a cao city manager um and, and the, actually the only distinction there is city manager is more of a traditional term for larger communities uh caos are uh, chief administrative officers which is sort of a uh, term that uh, I think was in the charter that you know, that came about, but um, yeah, there's no course for that. So almost all city managers come out of a department. So some are corporate officers, also known as city clerks. Uh, some of them are engineers. Some of them are planners. Uh, some are directors of finance. So, but but that particular job really has no training other than being on the job. Trial by fire. Trial by fire. Absolutely. I, I always tell them the number one qualship, you know, quality, and, and it's just it's really leadership at that level now, right? Because you can't possibly know engineering and finance to the level that those directors do, right? Just have a scorched feet all the time. <laughs> I trust a lot of people. Yeah. How long did you work for the city? I think it was twenty-two years. Twenty-two years. During that time, uh, how many how many council meetings? Were you oh, I actually calculated that once. Uh, I don't, I don't know, but you figure there's, in a given year, you have like, you know, twenty five, thirty council meetings. Each meeting may deal with you know five or six or seven items. And I actually calculated the number of hours um, before I retired. I calculated the number of hours I spent in council meetings, and it was a lot. It was a big chunk of my life <laughs> <laughs> spent in council meetings, both as a planner and as the city manager. So I guess you've seen uh, a different, you know, myriad of, of counselors come and go. And, you know, there's probably some some uh, councils that, that stand out for you. And we're not going to go into names, but we're going to go into makeups. And, and what were some of the more interesting makeups that seemed to work when it came to, you know, a very functional uh, set of people that were working together and it seemed to be just a, you know, I'm, I'm going to use a word. Uh, they were synonymous. Like they, they knew where they had to go. Who, what kind of traits or what, what kind of makeups of council have you seen to be really effective for a city? You know, I think, I think that, you know, some of the councils that uh, I dealt with that were truly effective. And I think, you know, Cologne was a successful city and, uh, in many ways. And, and part of that was the, the, the leadership of its elected people over the years. I mean, great, great councils. Um, but I think the characteristics that always worked is a, a, not so much a common vision, not even so much a, a shared belief, other than a shared belief in making Kelowna better. And so I, I saw people, very diverse councils with very diverse ideas on how to do that. But at the end of the day, they always seem, even if they disagreed, we very rarely had um, split. You know, some some communities have councils that vote, you know, 5-4, 5-4, 5-4, 5-4. Right, right, right. Uh, and I don't think that's particularly healthy. So, so while disagreement on council is good for democracy, different points of view shared around the table, I also think it's really important for people to be able to come together and, and make decisions. And I think one of the characteristics of many of our councils in the past that I think really, really worked was, you know, you might get a 5-4 vote, but you rarely got it with the same people on the same side. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, you know, so, I mean, there was a standing joke you know, Robert Hobson and Andre Blondley, you know, were kind of for years are polar opposites in many things. And by the end of their terms, like they were more often than not agreeing with each other because of, you know, the experiences they had. And, and although they still came from very different backgrounds, very different perspectives, you know, in the end, not, not every decision is, you know, business versus the environment or something. Like each decision stood alone. I think the councils that can understand that each decision stands on its own and you're not there to really represent 
a particular faction or right. a party or a point of view. You're, you're there to represent the public in the best interest. And I think, you know, we were really fortunate not to have the kind of divisions other councils have and the split and the, you know, voting in spite of the other person, right? Which, which is, you know, is not uncommon. So we, were, we never had that. So what's interesting is with when you talk about uh, Andre Blondley and, and Robert Hobson, you can see the the trust growing between the two of them that they were over the years or over you know several meetings they started to learn to probably appreciate the other's perspective and 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 point of view and that's why they started to come together was listen he's he's thinking about the best city I'm thinking about the best outcome. So now I, I think that that common ground can be created. Yeah. Uh, and again, you couldn't get two people from more different backgrounds or perspectives. And yet so many of the issues that we deal with are, are unique issues. And, and that's what I'm saying. They're not coming from it from a, you know, I mean, I think, you know, political parties are the worst thing that could happen to local government. I think local governments function because they don't have party whips. And they don't force people to take sides. I think each councillor is is there to represent themselves on behalf of some constituency made up of a collection of people in the community. And so I think that freedom allows them to vote one way today and a different way on a different issue. So, Ron, I've had an opportunity to to chat with some candidates and, and some incumbents. And with the municipal election coming up, there's a... There's chat about building consensus and like skilled counselors are able to build consensus. And in, in your eyes, is that an important aspect to have for somebody that's, that's actually going to move the city forward? Yeah, I know. Absolutely. Like I said, I think you could have different points of view. Uh, you come from different backgrounds, but I think to be able to, you know, sit in a room and I mean, the whole idea of discuss and debate and then to talk about the issues and learn from them. I mean, you know, I, I've always respected counselors that can come into a public hearing, you know, listen to the public and then have their debate and say, you know, I actually came in with a different point of view, but, you know, I think you've convinced me. And right. that to me, to, to be able to say I've listened and now, yeah, I think, you know, I've, I've learned as opposed to this is my point of view and I have to win. After oh, win, yeah, yeah. right? This has to be, and uh, I always think that's a great hallmark of a, of a council that could, um, uh, not that you're going to reach consensus on every issue, but at least, you know, even if you disagree, uh, you know, um, you know, again, we have some pretty classic councils that could, you know, really disagree on issues, you know, and yet go for a beer after. Which is key. Yeah. Because you leave that in the chambers. Yeah, you leave that in the chambers. You debate, you have a constituency, maybe a particular point of view, and maybe nobody else agrees with you and you try but in the end you say okay i tried so speaking of debate was there any counselors and we will name names because it's more fun that way but is is there any counselors that you found um they asked really pointed great questions of and maybe it's a, a budget matter or anything else and and you know they weren't trying to blindslide anybody, and and they might even alerted city staff that they were going to ask this question in a public forum. But were there any counselors that stand out in your mind as as they asked some really good critical questions at key times that really helped develop the best plan forward? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think yeah, I think there were a lot. I think you know to really depend on the issues. I think you know I always uh, not to pick on them, but I I did count on Andre. Um, Andre could cut through a business deal in like one second and say, okay, hold it. This makes no sense. <laughs> what do you mean we're going to, you know, add three offices for X number? Of, how much we're paying? You know, like, so he could, he could look at like a budget item or he could look at a project and, uh, and you know, and he's a, he's a smart business guy. And I think, you know, so wonderful skill and, and, and yet never, um, never derogatory or never trying to put staff. Uh, down or you know you didn't say well you idiots you didn't you see this he just asked good questions and I think we all respected that so you know we knew he was we we're going to get grilled um, you know again uh, you know there's again there's there's been so many over the years and it really depends on some of the the, the issues and you know, we're really fortunate I mean I, I've actually yeah, had to deal with some councils and to you know uh, who really um, 
you know, almost attack staff, almost to the level of bullying. And uh, for whatever reason, maybe they think it makes them popular. But, you know, I think think we always had councils that police that on their own. You know, if if somebody stepped out of line, then a more, you know, Colin Day would step in and say, "Mm, yeah, you know, we really don't do that here. You You can ask your question. And if staff, you know, didn't give you the right answer, you can ask them again and tell them, you know, but there's a line you just don't cross. Of, of being disrespectful because more often than not staff are protecting you actually <laughs> and you know and you know because you, you never want a staff person to say well counselor if you read page six <laughs> paragraph three uh, you'd see that's right in my report <laughs> and, uh, i've had i'm not in Kelowna, but i certainly had staff have done stuff like that from time to time yeah so so i know i think uh, you know i think uh, it, you know, it just depends on the skill you know robert again robert again very intelligent guy you know he could you know when he when he asked you a question you better be paying attention because you know he's read it and you know he's he's coming down uh, but yeah no i think uh, we've been blessed with pretty good counsels uh, you know person for person so yeah it's uh you you probably wouldn't even know who hadn't read the brief oh yeah no, hardly. <laughs> yeah so when when you hear different platforms and and inev- inevitably one comes up where you're like um, they want to tighten up operations or they want to cut excess or they want to make things more efficient, you know, and, and people want to hear that. They, they want to hear, you know, that is, is, is a, a mindset of, of somebody trying to get that job with the city. When, as someone who obviously day to day, moment by moment, you are trying to make the best decisions with the money in, in the coffers. How does that resonate with you? And I know you're not tied to an office right now, so this is even more fun. <laughs> but but how does that? Because I mean, there's there's a, a ripple effect when when somebody says that that there's you know there's there's places Waste that, at city hall uh, and yeah. I will cut you know and yeah no like and, and you know let me preface my remarks by saying any organization any organization has aspects that from time to time you certainly could go in and tighten up and and run better and and i think a good organization is always working through how do i make the organization better and when when an area you know, through bad management through like whatever um you know you can always improve so if, i would never ever say that there's no improvement you know but i think most people are really aren't aware of the fact that you know 85 percent 90% of the work the city done, does is is um, not going to change. You know, so whether or not there's a council, whether or not there's a city manager, if it snows, the roads are going to get plowed. The water's going to be clean. Sewage treatment plant's going to function. Police are going to drive around in cars catching bad guys. Firefighters are going to go and rescue people and cut them out of cars and do all the things they do. And they're going to do it in spite of city council or the city manager. Right. You know, so so there, there's a lot of the things we do are given. They're they're some they're some of them by law. We, like we have to do them. Essential so services. they're essential services in the way they're done. Uh, you know, you know. So right off the bat, I think it's disappointing for some people who get elected to realize that there's not a lot of free board. You know, that you're really monkeying around with. You know, adding some projects or or, or whatever. So, so the money that you actually have to cut or, you know, or to add to or take away from, pretty small. And, um, and uh, you know, generally I've learned as a city manager, the things I like as a taxpayer are really, you know, good. And we should do them. And the things I don't want, well, you should cut. Trouble is, two people don't necessarily share the same list. <laughs> you know, and, and that's where it gets tricky. Yeah. Yeah, I could, I could cut all kinds of things that I never do either, but... I know there's a constituency that would be really mad at me if we actually cut that. Well, you you often talked about the fact that there is um, there's different things that make a city, and, and it's roads, and it's clean water, and it's garbage pickup. garbage pickup, and all those things. But they want parks, they want fitness facilities, they want these other amenities. But but if you look at <laughs> here's what I'm responsible for to help you live, you cover all that. 
but you say often, but those are the interesting things that make people want to live there. And they are amenities. And I think people often have those lines blur that, no, I'm going to need a bike path. Well, actually, you don't. But we're going to make one because we think that makes a more vibrant city. Is, and it and it seems like, according to whoever's on council or you know city staff, those lines are are often it's a pendulum. I would think for yeah. amenities. Yeah. Well, you know, and that's why you have councils. That's why we elect people, right? Because at the end of the day, that's political, and and so they are the representatives that ultimately decide some of those, you know, some of those areas like those those amenities. Again, you need a fire department. You know, you need to plow snow. I mean, those are not decisions that council sits and says, well, should we plow snow this year? <laughs> yes or no. Uh, you know, it's whether you plow more snow or not. Uh, maybe the level of service, but you don't really, the service is kind of done. Um, so, yeah, so so that's that's why you have councils. I mean, that that's they're the ones that decide all those other things that make the city more livable or not. I mean... Yeah, I mean, there's things you can cut, but, you know, we live in a civil society. And so if you go to the Parkinson Rec Center right now, there's lots of programs for citizen, our citizens who are in need of special programs to maybe make their day a little nicer. Do those pay for themselves? Not at all. <laughs> right? Like, not at all. But we live in a civil society, and sometimes that's the cost of it. It's interesting, too, that my... Uh Full disclosure: We, I, I grew up in a in a family where municipal politics and, and and affairs were a part of the dinner chatter, and and uh, John Madison, my my dear departed father, often talked about legacy projects, and he said he'd often come home and say, "Oh no, it's another plaque project." <laughs> I'm like, "What? What do you? What do you mean a plaque project?" And he goes, "Somebody wants their name on a plaque," and he said, "And I don't want to do it, and I'm fighting desperately because we don't have the money." And somebody just wants their name on a plaque, yeah. and that's got to be frustrating for a city manager, though, because if because there are projects like that that are ego projects or can be, and 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 it's tough sometimes to push against that. Yeah, I mean, we we create ten uh, year capital plans and council approved. I mean, they're all approved by council and stuff. But you know, in those plans, you see a lot of the capital gets spent on you know trunk sewers upgrades and you know, stuff that you're not really going to cut a ribbon on. So. <laughs> So, yeah, so I think, you know, I think that's, that's difficult um, and it's much more exciting for council to get behind a pool or a new park yeah. and, and stuff like that. Yeah, like I said, I think we've always had pretty responsible council. I, I wouldn't say I bang my head very often <laughs> against that problem, but uh, certainly it can happen. So we're going to get into uh, city issues and, and the ones that, you know, might be more topical uh, come election time, but. I, I just want to take a step back and, and talk about, you know, uh, council and and did you have a lot of council meetings where it was just simply one person on an island voting against something? And it seemed to me or seemed to you that that was a pattern that existed where it just seems like there was one one person, no matter what, no matter the overwhelming evidence, but they just seemed to always want to vote against something. Is that helpful at all, or, do, or does, does that just show a, a fractioned uh, council? You know, uh, no, no, we've never had, uh, I, in my time, my tenure, I never really saw, you know, the one guy against the world kind of syndrome. You know, if if I think sometimes that could be legitimate. You know, if you had a council that just so happens that, you know, seven of the, peop seven of the people are sort of one frame of mind and one person was elected by a completely different constituency in the community with a very different view then yeah i think uh for in a number of cases then they may you know be at odds with the rest of council but that's okay because they're putting their point of view on the table and who knows right at least it's on the table and people can hear it what i don't think is helpful is a contrarian uh the person who votes against everything merely for attention and uh, and they exist again, not so much in our council, uh, but I certainly I remember Edmonton had a famous councillor. I think his name was Ed Ledger, and uh, he just he was always counter. I think just so you get the interview after and then be able to rail why you know. So he was I think he had a constituency of people who didn't like government and didn't like council, and so he was their guy, right? And uh, it wasn't helpful though. I don't think he ever. I don't think he ever 
made a better city. I don't think he ever forwarded a, a, a concept, uh, you know. Right. A, um, a contrarian. <laughs> Is there um, any kind of thoughts around as as we get closer to election of because you you talk about constituents and and how each councillor may have their people, their tribe that that, that just you know they're they're trying to serve that aspect of the population. Is there an aspect of that where people need? How would they get more information about these people? Like, how would you suggest? I need to learn more about this candidate. And there's you know there's public forum stuff, but is there any other means that you think people should have in order to have that mechanism? Yeah, it's really hard to say. Um, I guess you can Google them, <laughs> check out their Facebook page, see who they. Actually, social media. Yeah, I know a lot of interview. Well, as far as job interviews, that's the first place they go yeah. is to find out. Yeah, yeah, check out their Facebook page. But uh, yeah, no, I, I really don't. I mean, that's trouble local government in one sense is the media you know you have 37 candidates and it's not like provincial where if you decide you're going to be the mla um there's a lot of scrutiny whatever comes out of your mouth somebody's going to scrutinize and fact check and whatever a local government that that level of scrutiny isn't there so it's it's, it's really difficult you know and, I, until I, the rick and friend show until the rick and friend show <laughs> and that's changing now um yeah so no i think it's really difficult i think uh, word of mouth i think i think people should check it out ask people who work do you know this guy I mean, it's not that big a city do you know this guy that's and, true actually you know and and i think uh that's really important to get a, a number of viewpoints who is this person what's their background you know because campaign literature obviously it's like a job resume nobody's nobody's gonna say i'm not very good at this or don't it doesn't play well in the sandbox um so so i think you know that's about all you can do uh yeah and I, when i looked at Kelowna, you know years ago i noticed that most people that won actually had Two or three constituencies, right? So, you know, if they were maybe, you know, part of the ski group or tennis club as well as this association or that association. And so they didn't really come out of one. I think I think one candidate knocked on every door in the city because that helped them, you know. And, and it's interesting that, you know, I, I've, I've heard some anecdotal stories of, of counselors that before they got the job, they met with you. Which I which I found uh, very respectful, and and an important chatter, like just just to have a discussion and conversation of if I get elected, you know, I, I wanted to meet you. What could I expect? Yeah, no, no, it, it doesn't happen very often, unfortunately, or did as a city manager. Um, uh, but you know, there was always one or two, and I always felt, well, that's good. They're checking out the lay of the land, right? They obviously understand. They understand a lot more about local government than some of the other candidates because they understand the role of the city manager and, and and wanted to speak to them about you know what are the council's priorities what are we doing so yeah I think that was a that was a really uh, insightful for me as these candidates came forward so I, I really the the meat of today is really we're going to talk about some of the some of the topics that should be coming up around election time and uh, and so we're going to dive into that but let's if you can extrapolate for us city manager's role council's role mayor's role just just to kind of uh, give people an an overview of of the governance side of of council and why you know when i when i hear some of these uh election speeches and they say we're going to do this we're going to do that and i go "Uh, i don't think so (laughs) not unless you get a few other people on council but is, is there any aspect of that that people should understand as far as roles go yeah. Uh, yeah, I think the best way to explain it, I'll start at the top with the mayor, because of course I was city manager, I always put the mayor first, so <laughs> never precede the mayor. Um, yeah, I think what people have to understand, and, and we could talk a little about this, we know a lot of people, especially from the east, want to have wards, and uh, wards are not, they don't have wards in BC, and for good reason, because I, I think they're archaic anyway, so, uh, but we'll get into that. But think, uh, you know, when, when they created the, the local government and the way it's constituted, I think people have to understand it's actually, uh, in BC in particular, uh, it's based on a corporate model, okay? So when you think of the mayor, I think you have to think of the mayor as the chairman of the board of a corporation. Okay. And uh, the councillors are the board, and the city manager is the president of the company. 
And I think, you know, maybe that's the easiest way to describe it. The mayor's role is twofold. On one hand, they're the spokesman of council and therefore the city. They're the representative of the city. And it's almost like the queen's the representative, you know. Um, so it has almost a ceremonial role to it. That's why the mayor has a chain of office and all those things. Um, but also the mayor runs the council meetings and the mayor is the chair of the council meetings. And, and running a council meeting, you know, actually has some power. And, 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 and the mayor's real power is the power of influence and in many ways what the Americans would call the president's bully pulpit. I mean, the mayor is the spokesperson, so it has a lot of leeway and a lot of profile. And so the mayor has the ability to influence because of this. They're the only people elected by the whole community. Right. So that carries that kind of influential clout, I think. Um, in terms of actual power, no. I mean, the mayor has basically you know, runs council, can suspend the city manager if he thinks there's a problem. <laughs> can't even fire them because you can only suspend them because they have to come back to council and only council could fire city manager and can declare a state of emergency. So if you really look at actual power, it's fairly limited, um, but, but the power comes from the influence okay. and the prestige of the position. Uh, the councillors, uh, their role, um, individual councillors have no power. Okay, so if you think you're going to get on council and you're going to tell the engineering department that they should be plowing the roads better, well, you could try. <laughs> Give her a go. Give her a go. Uh, but they don't have to listen to you. Yeah. Because as an individual counselor, your only power derives from your vote in a council meeting. That's it. So you have one vote out of nine, and your vote in a council meeting is where the decision is made. So, you, so walking down around City Hall, you uh, you can't order people around or you know tell the police not to give you a ticket, right? You really have no power as a councilor. Your power comes from being a member of the council, right. and the decision of the council is where the power rests, right? So even the mayor doesn't have that power. Council as a whole has that power. Um, and which is, again, an important distinction, as you said, people will say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. No, you're going to do what you can influence a bunch of other people <laughs> to do. At least four. At yeah. least four um, to vote on. And and then, then there is a lot of uh, misunderstanding, but the city managers, like the president of the company, they, they run the company. The, the, you know, the, the council gives them a budget. Council approves the budget, approves how many people you know, work and all, this, all the money, approves the programs. But the day-to-day running of the city is done by the city manager within that. So the city manager doesn't have power. His power derives from what council gives him. Interesting. And, and so, you know, the concept of one employee is one that many new councillors don't understand. But the city manager is the sole employee of council. The rest of the staff who work for the city, work for the city manager. They don't work for the mayor. They don't work for individual councillors. They work for the city manager. And that's the model that we have. People say, well, you know, you know they, they, they confuse it with Westminster and say, well, maybe we should have some portfolios and I could be a city councillor in charge of engineering. And really small villages and towns may do that or used to do that. But it doesn't work because the minute you have councillors now telling the engineer what to do, uh, well, then, well, who's which one? You have nine people. Who does he listen to? Which of the nine? Uh, you know, so the only way you can listen to all nine is when they pass a motion at council and tell the city manager. So you can't have divided loyalties. You can't have ten captains of a ship. Right. So you have the board of directors, sets the budget, sets the goals, sets the direction, and hands it over to the city manager to actually implement so do you go through this orientation because you talk about part of your work as a consultant is you work with counselors and, and, and do an orientation. Do you kind of take them through that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, and there's a lot of confusion because the U.S. and about 60% of the American cities, particularly the big ones, have what's called a strong mayor system. We have what's known as a uh, council manager system, which is about 40% of the states. Um because they watch American TV, they, they think the mayor and you know is, is runs like a big city mayor in the United States, and, and they don't. Right. They don't. So, yeah, we take them through the differences and, and why we have this model.
So we have, uh, I think it's around October 15th or something for the municipal election. In, in your eyes, having seen the city's growth, uh, exponential growth, and, and some of the challenges inherent with the city that grows as fast as Kelowna is, is there top three, top five issues that you think are going to be emerging that the next council is going to have to really, uh, whether or not they want to or not, but they're going to have to focus in on, and it's going to have to be part of, you know, a priority sequence for them. Yeah, I think, you know, we talked about before, you know, the, the classics now become classics. They weren't 20 years ago, but homelessness and housing, you know, and you know, I think Cologne has actually done as good a job as any community of trying to tackle the housing issue. I think we have a, a range of housing types, and that's all communities in the end can really do as a city. Um, you know, I, th- I think we're going to have to get our heads around, um, you know, we've, we've achieved densification in our core you know, but but how much is too much? Like I, I actually think that'll be a question that the future councils are going to have to grapple. Already, you know, you, you know the downtown core is great, and people look and they see high rises and restaurants, and you know it's pretty vibrant now. More, you know, um, but but how much density do you cram into a so so when when's too much, and and right. when does the benefits of density start outweighing and 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 town centers start, uh, you know, weighing, uh, uh, the negative side start outweighing the benefits. So the, because don't we have a number of towers that are slated for construction? Like, yeah, like probably the most in history. Yeah. The trouble with towers are they're not really housing, you know, uh-huh. at the end, the end of the day, you know, uh, they're not really housing They're their investment vehicles and, uh, they're great and they're shiny and they're beautiful. Um, but, you know, they are investment vehicles. And how many do you really want? I mean, I had an amazing uh, opportunity to meet a, a professor from uh, Tecron in Haifa. And she was very anti-high-rise. And I said, well, why are you so anti? She goes, well, they're, they're not really. She says, first off, they're not housing. They're, they're investment vehicles. And secondly, um, they're machines. Machines. And so real estate appreciates. Machines depreciate. At some point in time, to make a building like that function, it's very mechanical. And at some point in time, the cost of maintaining it will outweigh the ability of the people to pay. And I thought, well, that's an interesting concept. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so, yeah, so I think those are, I mean, they may not happen in this term, but I think those are issues that we're going to have to come to grip with. And nobody's maybe thinking about right now Um, uh, that'll, uh, but that, you know, we we may have to, we may be forced to start considering how much density is too much. Transit. And, and the fact of moving people around a city, I mean, obviously you've studied it at length and you you probably had numerous more conversations than you'd care to, to have maybe about transit. But, but you're going to force me down. Uh, of course. <laughs> That's what Rick and friends do. I force you to. <laughs> uh, but, but no, the transit and, and, and again, I've, I've been, you know, like it or lump it, I've, I've been a part of those discussions too where light rail and, and, you know, hovercraft and all sorts of things, monorails. monorails. It, and as someone who's, uh, you know, come from an era and, and moving into the next one where, where we're probably going to have immense issues in, in moving people around the city, do you have any thoughts surrounding how that looks 10, 20, 30 years from now? Yeah, I think... I think, we, you know, again, you know, the, the whole notion of, um, of uh, an LRT type thing, we just don't have the population today, you know, but again, as planners, we have to look at the future, you know, never, never say never, because I think if you would have asked Jimmy Stewart in his first term, if you would have imagined Kelowna of today, I don't think he in a million years would have imagined Kelowna, even, you know, Jimmy just passed away, but with, even within his lifetime, right. I'm not sure he would have thought that Kelowna would be like this. Uh, so I never say never, I think, uh, but, but right now we just don't have the population to, to really deal with that. But we have the corridor. I mean, people don't realize, but the rail trail is exactly why the province allowed us to buy it, is to have the provision to be able at some point in time use it as a, as a corridor uh, when needed. Um, but I think the, uh, you know, transit, you know, I grew up as a kid in Sault Ste. Marie, you know, 1960s, and I took the bus everywhere. 
you know, because it was cheap and, and they actually had bus service, believe it or not. City yeah. of like 70,000 people. Hop on the bus, go downtown, hop on the bus, go to a movie. And uh, and I and I, Kelowna's a really difficult city to provide transit to because the ALR in particular, you know, the huge stretches of agricultural land and transit works best in a dense, compact environment. You know, so I think, you know, I think it's a tough city to, to have transit, but... You know, uh, when I go to Vancouver, interestingly enough, I don't drive, right? I mean, I actually have a compass pass for Vancouver. Yeah, yeah. You know, because it's, it's why? easy. It's easy. It's convenient. It's everywhere. It's regular. You can count on it. And I think when a transit system gets to that point, then it's easier to take. And unfortunately, we're just in this very awkward transition. We're investing in transit, but I'm not sure it's um, right now, we've, we've reached a scale where it's actually having those benefits, right? Parkinson Rec Center. Big one, eh? Yeah, geez. <laughs> How many years I put off fixing that roof? <laughs> Dodge that one. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, this is obviously going to be a, it's a huge investment. It's a huge expense. And, uh, and you know, I, I'm sure it's it was kicking around City Hall for years and years and years prior to. And so is this, uh, is this one of those things where you, you kind of have to bite the bullet and, and, and do it? Or where do you sit with the whole, you know, A, the chunk of money needed uh, to build for future generations and, and, and build a good complex and build a good facility? The land around it is quite valuable. And, and that's also has to be part of this decision making. But where do you rest on, on the whole Parkinson Reno rebuild. Yeah. Well, first off, we need something because, like I said, I put off fixing that roof for many years and or patching it. Um, and you know, part of the problem in local government, like I said, we have a ten-year capital plan, and we always have things that come through. I used to call it the pig in the python. Right? Every once in a while, you have a project that's so big, <laughs> you know, it's like a pig in a python, right? So you can just see it coming through, and it's big. So in my lifetime as a city manager, H two O, and uh, uh, and the police building were probably the two biggest expenditures, huge, you know, huge exp- you know, millions, you know, 40 million, 50, 60 million. Um, so Parkinson's, you know, is, you know, is going to be Doug's <laughs> big in the python. Uh, you know, and I, I, I guess I've always been an advocate, even with H2O, you know, some people said, I'll oh, build a 25 meter pole. But, you know, my view has always been, or Stewart Park, you know, and fixing Stewart Park with the beautiful bear and all that and the skating rink idea, you know. I've always believed that if you're going to do something, do it right or don't do it. If you can't afford it, don't do it. But if you can... Do it right. Then do it right because yeah. you'll regret not. I mean, could you imagine if each show was a 25-meter pool? <laughs> right? That is true, Like, actually. we have three 25-meter pools and, you know, and, you know, and so... I think you do it right. So so to me, one of the important things of Parkinson's, certainly one of the things we talked about before we left, is people have to understand now that recreation really isn't just going to a gym or a pool. Uh, recreation is part of a continuum of our healthcare system. And I always saw, um, you know, recreation. Or, and Jim Gabriel and his team did a wonderful job of programming the whole city, you know, bike paths, uh, you know, um, active by nature, you know, the, all kinds of things we do as a community to get people moving and active. And, and together. Yeah, yeah. Well, because healthcare is going to cost us a fortune. It is. <laughs> and the healthier our citizens are, the better for all of us in the end. And so, you know, um, if you went to the Parkinson even today, you know, if you've had a heart attack, there's a, you know, card, I don't remember what it's called, but there's a cardio program that they run with IHA to get people who've had heart attacks, you know, exercise and healthy. And so... I don't think we have to look at the Parkinson strictly as a recreation facility. I think we have to really understand that it's part of the health spectrum. Active people are healthy people. And so whatever we put in there, and I, I, I really haven't seen the latest plans. I have no idea. I, I try not to. You know. <laughs> um, but whatever it is, do it right or don't do it at all. Taxes. A lot of people, that's a real focal point for them on, on you know, are the taxes going to go up? Hey, during this council, the taxes have gone up exponentially, this this percentage. Is that, um, how focused should people and, and taxpayers be on this whole tax? Because I know for a lot of them, it is everything. 
but you know, with the cost of inflation, it's not like our, our city has a, a buffer against inflation. Things get more expensive. The city grows. But is there a was there ever a I guess an increase or a tax that tax increase that you're trying to stay within? Yeah, that's been a big issue for me over the years because I've I've always believed that you know some of these taxes were artificial. I, the goal of local government, I think, if you talk to our finance people, will tell you is stability. Right, stability over the long run. What, what you're trying to do is hit the sweet spot so you don't have big increases or big decreases. So any council that comes in and artificially cuts the budget, for instance, all you're doing is deferring a big tax credit later. You know, Vernon was the classic. They had a number of years of zero 25 years ago, whatever. And then they had like 12, 15% after. So, so I think what you really want is some form of equilibrium. And, you know, it's an interesting thing that people complain about taxes, but it's the same five. I mean, you know, as a city manager, I didn't get a lot of complaints. There was one lady that lived off of uh, Gordon. She complained every year. Um, But I mean, it was that small. We also had a guy come in every year and thank us because he lived all around the world and he thought his taxes were worth it just for the clean water. You know, so, so I think we did a lot of polling and I think what you saw, what's more important for us is value for money. It's like everything else. You know, if you go into your favorite men's clothier and there's a jacket and you spend a thousand bucks on it, if you really believe that that is an awesome jacket and you love it, somebody else may never spend that. But if you if you do, then there's value in that for you. And I think taxes are the same thing. I think if you if you look at the array of services we provide and the way we provide it, you know, if if you think that those are good and we're doing a good job, if the you know the water's clean and the garbage is picked up. Most people don't complain about taxes. You know, yeah, my, my friends do. You know, <laughs> all the guys I'm going to have, all my good friends are going to have lunch with will you know, always complain about taxes to me. Um, but, um, you know, but the general public didn't. They, you know, um, I, I would say it was a non-issue. I mean, and again, look at the polling. Nobody came back and said taxes are, you know, too high. And in Kelowna, you know, quite frankly, our taxes have never been particularly high compared to other communities. I mean, we've always been in the, the top 10 largest communities. We're always in the bottom quarter in terms of the taxes. So, um yeah, so, so taxes, it's a relative thing, right? Taxes are only high if you don't appreciate the services you're getting. We talked about uh, densification, and that's the city's plan, and you know we're getting to probably a, a pivotal time. Uh, the mill land is, is valuable. It's uh, close to downtown. A really interesting opportunity, privately held. Um, were you ever involved in the talks or was there ever sort of a discussion around use of the land or was that kind of after your tenure? Yeah, most of that was after my tenure. I think um, we always we always recognize that, you know, people would ask me, how long is Tolko going to be around? I said, it'll be around as long as the real estate is, you know, not as, not as valuable as what they produce, right? At some point in time, that'll switch and I'm sure the family will do their due diligence and know that. I've always viewed the Toko lands as what I would call the third jewel in the crown. You know? Really? Yeah, because if you look at the downtown from the west side, right, you have sort of the downtown and then you have sort of the delta kind of area and then you have Toko. And I always saw that it was the again, the third jewel of the crown, right, that, that one day the skyline will have something there that mm-hmm. uh, hopefully will make us proud, right? And is it uh, one of those, because you must know, is there a, how many acres are over there? I, I don't know off the top of my head, but it's a substantial piece of land. Now, they, I mean, I'm sure they have an environmental cleanup and all those things that they need to do to uh, get it ready. But at some point in time, yes, it's going to be, you know, I, I hope they do something interesting and different. You know, you think of um, in Victoria, I can't remember the name of it now, the Green you know, a really interesting sort of area, also in an industrial area, right? And um, so I hope they do something interesting. They have a real chance to. Uh, would it, is it, do you think the proximity is close enough that they wouldn't have to build like a master plan community where you have your own commercial and you have your own grocery store and, you know, kind of a, a dense cluster of, of commercial that serves that area? Or do you think it's close enough? To no, I think, I, I think they'll, they'll do. I think they'll do a, a planned community with, you know, some of their own as well. You know, um, 
certainly I'd look at that you know, if I was there and not to detract from the downtown. Um, but, you know, you still could provide service. You know, it's a big site. You'll probably have a lot of people living there. So I think you still have to provide amenities and services uh, for that area. I mean, again, there's a lot of people living in the downtown now. So it's not like it's already getting to the point where you, you, know, you might need more. Right? And as a city manager, when you see something like that being developed, do you start allocating transit and roads and, and just areas to service moving those people around? Yeah, not yet. Um, so first comes the concept, like what's it, what's it going to be from a very conceptual point of view? What are the densities looking like? How many people? And we're not even, you know, these are now, we're talking blobs on a map. It doesn't really matter what the buildings look like or anything. And out of that, then they have to start providing engineering studies and transit studies and those types of things that then start informing, um, you know, what may be needed in future. With an area like that, it's kind of interesting because you're fixed, you know, it's, you're fixed. The roads are fixed. It's not like a greenfield where, you know, so when we went into the upper mission, when we developed uh, Kettle Valley in those areas, well, if we needed a four-lane road, we'll just make it a little wider, right? <laughs> if we need a bigger trunk, you just put in a bigger trunk. It's all greenfield. Uh, in that particular area, you, you you got Knox Mountain right there. It's not like you're going to move that easily. You have an existing neighborhood and you have a few roads in. So, yeah. There has been talk. I have not seen... Uh, it on our favorite research tool, the Googs. Um, but is our is our wastewater treatment plant, is it going to have to go through another iteration to service the population? Is this another one of those pig in the python uh, types of, of conversations? Yeah. Um, yeah, at some point, right? Uh, we're growing very fast. I mean, that, that was expanded in I was I was still a director of planning, and that was sixty million dollar hit um, just to get it, you know, to that size. But um, yeah, you know, at some point in time, I, I unfortunately I don't, you know, don't don't know what that cutoff is. But absolutely, there's limits of growth for everything, right? And uh, you know, that's why the engineers are paid the big bucks to sort of get ahead of that, right, and start thinking about. You know, one of the great things we do now, thankfully, is asset management. So we and we have a good understanding of all our assets and when they're likely to, you know, need expansion or replacement and those types of things. So they have a pretty good handle on all that. Uh, Joel Short was uh, not Joel Short. Um, no, can't remember his last name right now. Sorry, uh, but yeah, they have a pretty good handle on that. And so you know, they will start putting in the budget at the point in which we know it's going to be expanding based on the population that we can start. Like it won't be, Oh my God, we've run out of room. <laughs> you know, no, it shouldn't be, uh, long before that, uh, it'll be enter the long-term capital plan. And long before that we'll start allocating that we're going to need money to do that at some point in the future. Do we have an advantage with a lake right there that we can always have, you know, because some cities don't have a, a massive lake right beside them. Does that help us in any way? Well, in terms of, yeah, in terms of water, it does. Uh, but, you know, we look around the world right now, we see some real you know, interesting things happening in, you know, in areas. But, yeah, we do have a massive lake. Uh, what we draw out of the lake is all controlled by the province. So, you know, there's water licenses and stuff. City has a combination of things that we do. I think we have three intakes. Uh, one, well, Glenmore GID has their own. Kelowna has two, one in the south, one downtown, one at um, Poplar Point. Uh, the rest of the community draws, uh, Black Mountain draws from upper mountain lakes, uh, come down. I think Rutland is Wells. Seekid was Wells, but now are also drawing from our southern intake for domestic. Yeah, so it's certainly... Um, there are other communities that rely strictly on groundwater uh, or uh, you know reservoirs that may or may not dry out. And uh, so I, I think water around the province is a pretty critical issue. I don't know. It's one of those ones that I think in some ways is too big and scary for, <laughs> for people to think about because, uh, you know, water, water issues have never really been in, well addressed. Never. No, <laughs> well, that's just it. Is they're not a hot topic, but I mean, we. It's, it's only not, water. I mean, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, I guess we'll drink beer or something, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it's very important, but uh, I think sometimes the problem is so big and scary that we don't, don't want to think about it. Thanks for scaring us, Ron. There we go. <laughs> I had to. 
do you ever drive around the city and kind of go, oh, I, I remember that, and I like. Do you ever get a sense of? Uh, does it put a smile on your face when you drive through the city and kind of go, I, I was part of this. I, yeah, I, I kind of built this. It's actually both because I also go around the city. Oh God, can't remember. <laughs> can't believe we approve that. <laughs> Jesus. Um, yeah, so I do both. Yeah, no, it's still. Yeah, no, it's tough. Um, you know, I was walking around the other day with someone, and uh, you know, she was pointing something. And she goes, "I bet she could tell a story about just about every block." And I said, "Yeah, unfortunately, I probably could." Yeah. Well, it would be interesting though to. Uh like, is there a book in you? Is is there a... Oh, everybody says there is. I'm not sure I'm that interesting. <laughs> but I've had a number of people say, oh, you should write a book. And I said, no. Well, the 2003 fires were a book in itself. I mean, there was so much going on and so many interesting... Well, and the ones you shared, and I'm sure there's more, but I mean, it seems like a really interesting time for emergency just response and, and how many different facets of of our our whole community kind of came together and and you know to not lose life and and just to do what we did in a very short amount of time in a very critical adrenaline fueled time i i mean that that to me is still one of the uh, you know a big marker in our in our timeline yeah i think jerry jerry zimmerman said we should write a book and then we to make a movie and he says Danny DeVito can play him and I get Robert De Niro to play him. <laughs> yeah I don't know yeah, I think I, I guess so uh, yeah people have said I should but uh, yeah I just haven't got around to it <laughs> well you're busy doing consulting I'm busy know? creating new adventures every year <laughs> it, it is it is but I do think that if if you were to because I, I think a lot of people are are still when they come to Kelowna and I get to see it through the eyes of a visitor they're just so awestruck like they're like, you have no idea what you have here. You have beautiful lake, you have mountains, you have beautiful uh, uh, ski hills, wineries, beaches. I mean, the, the list goes on. And, and they go, and you can do a lot of those things in one day. And that's the other cool part. Well, you know, the late uh, Gerhard Blank just passed away, you know, actually a few months ago. And he was the developer of uh, Wilden, you know, European, from you know, and uh he used to always tell me at the you know, Christmas, we'd always, you know, sit at the UDI Christmas, uh, you know, uh, event. And he'd always say to me, Ron, the people of Kelowna have no idea what they have here. You know, he had, yeah, he lived in, he was from Austria, I think, originally. He, um, he had a home in, you know, uh, different places, you know, traveled the world, lived around the world. And he says, they just don't get it. They don't understand how special this place is. And again, this is a man who could live anywhere in the world. Like get a place in Mallorca. <laughs> you know, like so, you know, and, and he'd always say that every year. I don't think people understand what a special place this is. I have a friend, Wolfgang, who lives uh, close to Austria. Maybe just the uh, Austrians like it or something. <laughs> I think it's Austrians have a special affinity. <laughs> yeah. But there's a, a picture of him on kind of a you know, one of those beautiful Ricola commercial yeah, you know, yeah. pictures. And so there's the this meadow with flowers, and he's standing in the middle of it. And he says, uh, you know what's interesting about this photo? And, as I, and, and I was re remarking, wow, that's a beautiful photo. He goes, the reason I moved to Canada is he said, every square foot of where I was standing is owned by somebody. And he said, and in Canada, you can go miles and miles onto crown land. And he says, never see anyone. And he said you don't have that dense population that a lot of Europeans have. And he said, to truly get away from it all is almost impossible in certain parts of Europe. And he says, that's the one aspect that he always brought up was, he just go off into Joe Rich and he says, you won't see anybody for a long time. So, yeah, I, th I think we do take it for granted. Yeah, I know we do. Absolutely. Okay, so if you were to create the perfect counselor, the perfect one, and you have a white canvas... <laughs> and Ron is already rubbing his forehead. <laughs> um, but but what what kind of aspect like what traits would you would you if you were to create one? And I'm not saying the current council doesn't have those. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying if you were to create one, and and there's probably going to be you know bits of the Andre Blondley and Robert Hobson and, and various counselors from the past and the future and current and but what what makeup would they have? What kind of traits would they have? You know, I, th I think um, 
uh, inquisitive. I think, you know, you're, you, you deal with a lot, you know, every council meeting, you get a wide variety of things that you, you know, you need to delve and, and learn about. So I think you need to be inquisitive and like that, you know, they'd like to be able to deal with a variety of things. Uh, I think you, you need to, yeah, maybe as a staffer, I'm a bit biased, but I think you need to be respectful, respectful of other counselors and respectful of staff. I think you, you, you should be, um, Fearless enough to ask the questions and not feel like you're asking a stupid question because, you know, most things are new to people. You can't, nobody expects the minute you got elected, you're anointed from above and now have special knowledge. You don't. You're there as a representative of the public. So, you know, if we're dealing with something that you, and maybe we're, we are, haven't spent the time to put it into context for you, ask. You know, so I think, I think you also have to have the confidence to be able to say, like, I know nothing about this. Could you just start at the beginning and tell me, like, what this is about? I think a lot of new counselors are afraid to, to ask because they're not sure. Um, but I think you really should because chances are there's somebody out there listening who doesn't have a clue what we're talking about either. Right? So, and you're their representative. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so I, so I think, uh, you know, I think those are important things. I think you have to have a... It's about problem solving. We talked a little bit about this you know, before in terms of, you know, one of the great traits of Walter Gray was he, he, he just wanted to solve a problem. He didn't care whose idea it was. Mm-hmm. No you ego. Know? No ego. You know, like, what about this? How about this? And he'd say to you, I got an idea. I got it on. I got an idea. What do you think of this? And he'd say, ah, I'm not sure that's a great idea, Walter. And he'd say, that's okay. How about this? You know, he'd throw out another. He's a pitch man. He's always pitching you solutions. But he didn't care if you didn't take them. And it wasn't about that. It was about solving the problem. And so I think, you know, inquisitive, respectful, um, confident to, to say you don't know. And that's fine. Why would you? Why would you know some of this stuff? It is complex. Um, and, uh, and a real strong desire to solve problems. And, and you know, and, and collaboratively. I think, you know, you do take your all your bias and your background and your constituency to the table. But that's the beauty of democracy. That's exactly what you should be doing, right? Um, but, uh, yeah, I think those, some of those characteristics would serve you well um, to be a, a good counselor. And remember, you're going to make in an average term, and I wish I had the number, but it was thousands of decisions, thousands. Yeah. And yeah. some are not going to be good. Some of them are not going to be good. I've, I've, I've never seen in Kelowna in my tenure – any counselor who ultimately wasn't elected because of a decision they made. Mm. You know, it's usually, nobody remembers that. I mean, just don't kid yourself. I mean, people don't really watch this stuff, right? They, as long as the garbage got picked up at 10 o'clock on Friday as usual, nobody notices if the city's running or not. Um, so let's not kid ourselves. Um, so you're making thousands of decisions, and I think voters ultimately look at feeling a gut a trend does this person make decisions you know or you know as opposed to well in that case they voted against this and i really liked it so i'm not voting nobody thinks like that they they, they look at it more globally i think well speaking of decisions and and this is just me and i could be way off because again i make bad decisions all the time but one of the things is whenever somebody says well we should we should form a, a subcommittee we should form a group and and they give us their findings and everything else. But part of me thinks if you're an elected official, you have to have that fearlessness to say, you know what? I was elected. I'm going to make the call because I don't want to, I don't want to do a blame shift with, with a decision that's very unpopular and someone's not going to like it. But if I can kind of push it off to this committee, then I have a, a better shot at staying popular. Is that? Oh, Rick, I think, you know, the, the, if there's the, you know, the final of those, encouraged to make the call. Like, make the call. Yeah. I think more people have been tossed off council for having a, a reputation of not making a decision than anyone who got tossed for making the wrong one. <laughs> Generally speaking, right? Okay, so we have time for one last thought from uh, from Ron. You wanted to speak about this wards thing and, and why why it may or may not be a good idea. 
Yeah, um, you know, every election somebody says we need a ward system, and ward systems are very rare in BC. In fact, I think there's only one ward in BC, and that's in Lake Country, and they put it in because of the unique nature of bringing together Winfield and Oyama and all those areas, and they were worried about accountability, and, and so it's unique. Uh, there aren't. You know, wards are uh, very popular, you know, in other provinces, and but not in BC at all, and, and I think it's a good thing. And again, going back to my comment, you know, the Board of... Council's a board of directors. And one of the problems with wards, uh, people like wards, so then you're accountable to your constituents, a defined constituency. Um, yeah, but for what? It's not like, you know, if you look at those other cities, what you start getting when you have wards is um, trade-off. Scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. I'll approve a pool in Glenmore if you approve a, a, you know, a new water park in the Mission. Well, maybe neither of those are needed because maybe what's needed is a sewer in Rutland, <laughs> you know. Right. So, so when you when you see what happens in other communities with ward systems, I think you know there's an awful lot of non-priority spending for political reasons. And one of the good things about having a council that is not beholden to a particular piece of geography is that they can make decisions on what's best for the city as a whole. I mean, it's, you know, Rutland has as many recreational areas as anywhere else in the city. In spite of the fact there weren't over the years as many people we had, you know, uh, from Rutland uh, as in other areas of the city. So this notion that some area is deprived because they don't have a, a counselor that they can, you know, hit over the head and say, why aren't you doing more for our area? Yeah, I think councils in the past have tried to distribute fairly what they can when the budget allowed it and, and had it. So, yeah, I think I think wards are archaic and overrated. There's how's that for controversy? You'll get lots of hate mail now. Uh, overrated and and uh, and uh, yeah, put in a ward system and you'll spend a lot more for everything because now it's, it'll be decisions that should be made as to you know what's a priority by council as a whole will now be scratch my back i'll scratch yours but your reasoning is sound in in regards to uh when you think about the betterment of a city a city is made up of you know the sum of of its parts for sure but i don't think any one section should be overlooked over another based on the fact that i might have a more vocal leader of my ward uh who's actually going to get more because they just seem to have that building consensus and, and being able to give more or, or take more or wh- whatever it is, but they're able to get more for their region. And, and again, I think the city always suffers as a result of that. So yeah. I, again, I don't think any part of the city suffered. Um, and yet we had a pretty, we had, we had elected people from everywhere. I, th- I think they made the decision based on what they determined collectively as need, mm-hmm. not you know a strong pound the table alderman, you know, <laughs> demanding that their word get their fair share you know ron matusi thanks again for the uh the time good always a pleasure